the 76th Psalm, and then we'll work our way through a number of other passages this morning. We'll begin by reading the entirety of Psalm 76. It's entitled, For the Choir Director on Stringed Instruments, a Psalm of Asaph, a Psalm. God is known in Judah. His name is great in Israel. His tabernacle is in Salem. His dwelling place also is in Zion. There he broke the flaming arrows, the shield and the sword and the weapons of war. You are resplendent. How majestic, more majestic than the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted were plundered. They sank into sleep, and none of the warriors could use his hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse were cast into a dead sleep. You, even you, are to be feared. And who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? You caused judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still when God arose to judgment to save all the humble of the earth. For the wrath of man shall praise you. With a remnant of wrath you will gird yourself. Make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. Let all who are around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. He will cut off the spirit of princes. He is feared by the kings of the earth. Father, even as the psalm says, we want each of us who is around you this morning to bring gifts. And now specifically to bring the gift of our hearts to your word in eagerness and in humility and in submission to what you say and in praise and in faith and obedience as we leave this place this morning. God, speak to us today. Show us your great power. Show us your great love for us in the gospel of your Son. We pray in his name. Amen. This morning, I want just particularly to draw your attention again to the first half of verse 10. For the wrath of man shall praise you. Now that doesn't seem like it would be possible that man's wrath, man's anger, man's sin could actually praise God. But that's what the verse says, that somehow God is so great and He's so powerful that He can work such that even man's wrath praises Him. Even man's attempts to oppose God actually end up working out for God's praise. Man's sinfulness, man's high-handedness towards God, man's pride. God is powerful enough, the psalmist says, to turn all of that into His own praise, into glory for Himself. Now we need to be careful and not mistake what's being said here. It's not saying that just because God can turn man's wrath into His praise that man's wrath is therefore okay. We're not being let off the hook here just because God works all things together for good and He works everything for His glory. That doesn't let us off the hook when we sin. There's a very real sense, in addition to what the psalmist says, in which the wrath of man, the sin of man, defames God, belittles God, blasphemes God, does the very opposite of praising God in the moment that we're doing it. But the psalmist is reminding us that in God's power and in His overarching plan and sovereignty, He will not allow even human sin to derail His plan to bring glory for Himself from all the ends of the earth. Even human sin, He will not allow to prevent His praise. God sometimes gets glory in spite of man's wrath 
And sometimes the psalmist says he gets glory in the midst of man's wrath, in the midst of our sinfulness. One of the ways he gets glory in the midst of our sinfulness is by punishing our sin. Now, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He doesn't punish our sin with delight, but he gets glory for that. When you read the book of Revelation and sin is finally punished, the angels are praising God that he's righteous and that he's good. And sometimes God gets glory as the result of man's sin because he takes what we intended for evil and he works it for good. He works our wrath, our sinfulness, our opposition to him in ways that sometimes we who are committing the sin would never have actually wished for in the moment of the sin. When people are opposing God, they don't wish that he will turn it for his praise, but he does in ways that they could never imagine and in ways that those who are opposing him would have avoided at all costs if they had known what God was going to do. And so the psalmist tells us, even the wrath of man shall praise you, God. And I want to just give you a few examples of what the psalmist means. First, you can consider the example of Joseph from the book of Genesis, right? His brothers demonstrated the wrath of man. They sold him into slavery. Their own brother. But did that wrath turn out to God's praise? Well, surely it did. Because if Joseph had not been sold into slavery, then he would have never gone down to Egypt. And if he had never gone down to Egypt, he would have never been there to interpret Pharaoh's dream about the famine that was coming on the land. And if he had never interpreted Pharaoh's dream about the famine that was coming on the land, then there would have been no provisions in the midst of the famine and all the people would have died, including his own brothers who came down from Canaan to Egypt to get food. So God worked even their wrath for their own good. He kept them alive. But if his brothers had died, what would have happened to the nation of Israel? It would have died. And if the nation of Israel had died, then you and I would be dead in our sins because there would have been no Messiah as God had promised. So you see, in the midst of what they meant for evil, God meant it for good to keep them alive to keep the nation alive, to keep the messianic hope alive, to keep us alive in the end as well. The wrath of man ended up praising God and we're thankful for it. You could also think about the wrath of Pharaoh in Exodus. The story of Pharaoh's anger and his hardening of his heart is a perfect illustration of Psalm 76 verse 10. We still marvel today at all the plagues that God sent upon the Egyptians, don't we? We look at that and we say, God is amazingly powerful and He hates sin. We think about Him parting the Red Sea and we are astonished by that. We praise God for His power when we read the story of the Exodus. But we wouldn't read the story of the Exodus. It wouldn't be the same story anyway were it not for the wrath of Pharaoh. God used Pharaoh's wrath as an opportunity to demonstrate his power so that he would be praised for his power in ways that he wouldn't have without all that went on there. So the wrath of man once again worked out for God's praise. And then most significantly, we should think about the cross of Jesus, shouldn't we? There's no doubt that the wrath of man was evident that day on that spot outside the city of Jerusalem. That was the greatest sin that was ever committed, wasn't it? 
Yes, it was just one man, but that one man that they killed was worth more than all the rest of humankind put together, wasn't he? The God-man. This is the greatest outpouring of human wrath that ever was. The greatest sin that ever was committed. And yet, did God use it for His praise? Of course. There's nothing that we praise God more for than the cross of His Son. It's beneath the cross of Jesus and beneath the cross of Jesus alone that we find a place to stand. So of course we praise God for that, although the men who did it never would have intended it to turn out that way. So it's true. The wrath of man shall praise you. God works all things, even human wrath, human anger, human sin, together for good for His people and together for His own glory, for His own praise. And it was with that thought in mind that I was reading not too long ago the crucifixion accounts, the the trial of Jesus, the arrest of Jesus, His trial, and then His crucifixion. And I noticed this Psalm 7610 principle coming to life in an unusual way. Of course, the way that I just mentioned, but in another way. The wrath of man praises God all throughout the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. And here's what I mean. When you read the story of Jesus' trial and His death, What you find is a lot of angry people saying a lot of angry things, voicing the wrath of man out loud again and again and again in those accounts. And yet very often those people who are voicing their wrath without their realizing it are at the same time speaking prophetically. Have you ever noticed that? As you read through the accounts of Jesus' arrest and trial and crucifixion, people are saying things in anger that they mean to denigrate Jesus. And actually, they're speaking prophetically. They're explaining the gospel, though they didn't know that that's what they were doing. They thought that they were mocking Jesus, but they were actually speaking to God's praise. They thought that they were demonstrating wrath, and in their hearts they were. But God is using that, as it's recorded in the Gospels for us, to His praise. And you and I can better understand and appreciate the gospel and praise God for it when we look at the wrath of man in those stories and see what it was they were saying and see what it was that God meant by it all. And I want to walk you through this morning just four examples of what I mean. And I'm going to take one example from each of the four gospels, but I'm going to cover them in the order in which they happened, not in the order of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So... Four places where Psalm 76.10 comes to life in the Gospels. And I want to show it to you just to reinforce that God brings everything under His sovereignty for His praise. But I want to show these things to you more so so that I can simply preach the Gospel to you. So four examples. The first one would be in John chapter 11. John 11, verses 47 through 53. And as you're turning there... Um, you should notice that Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead and naturally that created quite a stir. And the Pharisees and the chief priests and the leaders in Jerusalem were unhappy with him. And it's as a result of that that we come to John 11:47 and read, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will come to believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. In other words, if we let him go on, the people are going to 
riot in praise of him and the Romans are going to squash that and we'll lose everything. But one of them, verse 49, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Now, this is the most obvious example of what I'm talking about because John tells us in verse 51 that Caiaphas said something that he didn't really mean. He meant it in anger, but God meant it to actually explain the gospel to us. And so it's obvious here. Caiaphas had nothing but malice in his heart toward Jesus. He wasn't trying to say, oh, you know, if we let him die, then we'll be safe from our sins. No, he's saying, if we kill him, then the Romans will leave us alone because there won't be a great turning to Jesus. There won't be any kind of uprising and the nation will be safe and our positions will be safe. He had nothing but wrath in his heart for which he would be held accountable. And yet God used the wrath of man, the wrath of Caiaphas, for his own praise, didn't he? For not only did Caiaphas' remarks get the ball rolling toward Jesus' crucifixion, we're told that in verse 53, it was God's plan that Jesus was crucified and he used Caiaphas to bring it about. But Caiaphas' remarks, as John tells us in verse 51, also help explain to us what the crucifixion was really all about. It is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. That's the gospel, isn't it? It's not what Caiaphas meant, but that's the gospel. It's expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perished. Now again, Caiaphas assumed that Jesus' death would keep the nation from upheaval, keep the Romans from cracking down upon them with a heavy hand, that the Jewish nation would survive as it was in that day. But he was highlighting without realizing it the gospel, that the death of one man would actually prevent the whole nation, all of God's people, both Jews and Gentiles scattered abroad from perishing. Jesus' death saves his people from death. That's what he's saying. Jesus' death actually saves people from death. Now that seems obvious. I hope it is obvious to you. But it's important to notice what Caiaphas says because it helps us kind of in our modern time when some people are denying, some people who call themselves Bible-believing Christians are denying that Jesus' death was necessary to prevent us from death. Caiaphas says, no, 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 that's not it. Caiaphas speaking in ways that he didn't understand. In other words, there are people today who say, you know, Jesus died. Yes, that's important. It's really important. But... They don't want to say that Jesus died so that we don't have to die. They say, well, Jesus died as a martyr for justice, you know, to teach us that, that there's a lot of bad stuff in the world and he's a good example of somebody who was faithful all the way to the end. Or they say, Jesus died as a good example for us. You know, he loved us and loved us enough to die for us and that's what the cross really means is that Jesus is our example. Now, both of these things are true. But that's not the whole story, is it? If we say that Jesus simply died as a martyr for justice, then that doesn't save us from death, does it? 
If we say that Jesus died as an example of great love, that doesn't save us from death either. What makes the fact that he died loving is that he was doing something for us when he died. And though Caiaphas didn't understand it, Caiaphas explained it. Christ died so that the whole nation of his people doesn't have to die. And again, I just say be careful because there are people today who call themselves Bible-believing Christians who have no time for that kind of thinking. In fact, the phrase that they use is that if God were to send his son to die in place of sinners so that they didn't have to die, if this was God's doing, then that's child abuse. Cosmic child abuse, that's the phrase that they use. But it's right here in the Scriptures, isn't it? It's expedient that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Jesus died so that we don't have to. Caiaphas could have never imagined that that was true. He could have never imagined how his words would be used 2,000 years later and just a few decades later by the Apostle John. He would have hated that it was true. But it is true. Jesus died so we don't have to die. Even the wrath of Caiaphas praised the Lord. Are you grateful for that? This morning that He died so that you don't have to die? And have you received the gift? The wrath of man praises Jesus in the words of Caiaphas. And then as we fast forward to Jesus' trial before another man, confused man named Pilate, we will look at Luke chapter 23. So we're going backward in the Bible, but forward in time to Luke 23, verses 13 through 25. And we're going to observe Jesus under trial before the Roman leader, Pilate. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Now he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. But they cried out all together, saying, Away with this man and release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified and their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. And he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Here again we have the wrath of man. The wrath of man in the words and the actions of the crowd that day in Jerusalem. And it's not just their words that were prophetic, but the actions that their words brought about in the decision of Pilate. Here we have in these verses one man, verse 15b, who is completely innocent. And another man in verse 19 who deserves to die. And of course it seems obvious if you're just a bystander here, what should happen? 
right? Barabbas should die and Jesus should live. The story, according to all laws of human justice, should have gone exactly the reverse of the way it went. But instead, what happened in verse 25 is that they released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but delivered the innocent man, Jesus, over to the will of the crowds. And the point is, this is an exact portrait of how the gospel works, is it not? Certainly, the mobs in Jerusalem didn't intend for that to happen, but this is an exact picture of the gospel that they brought about here with Jesus and Barabbas. One man deserves to live, and yet he dies. And another man deserves to die, and yet he lives because the first man traded places with him. Isn't that the good news? One man deserves to live and he dies. Another man deserves to die and he lives because the first man died the death sentence that he deserved. What we have here is much the same as what Caiaphas has already prophesied, that it's more expedient for Jesus to die than for his people to die. But there's a significant difference here that I want you to notice. Caiaphas unwittingly prophesied that Jesus would die on behalf of all the people. And that was true. But the scene in Luke 23 is a bit more personal, isn't it? It's not just all the people that are in view now. It's someone very specific. And I think it's God's purpose when we read this story that we pay careful attention to this man Barabbas. Because it's one thing to speak of Jesus dying on behalf of all the scattered children of God around the world who will be coming to Him in faith. But it's quite another thing to stand in the place of Barabbas with the spotlight focused on yourself and to be able to say, I'm the one who's getting off the hook here. It's me. I'm the one in whose place He suffered. But I believe that's exactly what God would have us understand. This is exactly where He would have us stand. In the place of Barabbas. Because spiritually... We are exactly like Him. We're insurrectionists against God. Isn't that what sin is? Sin is not just hurting other people. It's that there's a king and we've rebelled against Him. We're insurrectionists like Barabbas. We are sinners by nature. We're sinners not only by nature but by choice. All of you this week have sat there and watched yourself and you could almost, when you're sinning, sometimes see yourself from the outside and say, I know I'm not supposed to be doing it, but here I am doing it again. All of us are deserving of capital punishment, just like Barabbas. And yet, in spite of all that, we are offered the very same clemency that he was offered. It's possible for you and for I and for me to trade places with this Nazarene who didn't deserve to die. And I wonder if Barabbas, that day after they released him from the jail and he took a few minutes to notice that the chains were gone. I wonder if he eventually followed the mob outside of the city gate and out to the place of crucifixion. I don't know, but I just wonder if he stood there and watched what Jesus was going through and said to himself, that's my cross that he's hanging on. That was supposed to be me. That's what I deserve. That good man is dying in my place. See, it would have been very personal for him if he actually did that, if he actually came to faith in Jesus. But it should be very personal for us. I wonder if you've ever stood in front of God's Word looking in your mind's eye at the cross and discovered these hard and yet wonderful realities 
that you're Barabbas and that God sets you free because someone died in your place. See, if there's any Christian, any character in the Bible that every Christian ought to be able to relate to, I think it would be this man Barabbas. Not everyone is a leader like David or like Moses. Not every one of us is a preacher like Isaiah or Elijah. Not every one of us is a pastor like Timothy or a missionary like Paul. Not everyone suffers like Job suffered. Not everyone's a father like Jacob or a mother like Mary. In fact, not everyone's even a lay person. I read Romans 16 that has this list of all these lay people that helped Paul, and I think of you, not of me. So there are all these characters that some of us can identify, but there aren't as many that every one of us can identify with exactly. But Barabbas is exactly every Christian, isn't he? He's every Christian who ever lived. All of us are sinners like Barabbas. All of us are guilty like Barabbas. And yet all of us who are Christians have at some point in time stood before the cross like Barabbas and seen Jesus take our place understood that He died on our cross, understood that He paid for our sins, understood that He took our shame, that He bore our guilt, that He saved our lives, that we were the guilty ones who deserved to die, and He was the sinless one who deserved to live, and yet somehow we traded places with Him. As I said, I don't know if Barabbas ever repented or traded places with Jesus spiritually, but just Observing his physical rescue from death, his physical salvation is enough to make me identify with him and to love his story. Do you identify with Barabbas? Do you love his story? In other words, have you received the same gift spiritually that Barabbas received physically that day? Have you traded places with Jesus? If you haven't yet, you can if you'll repent of your sin and trust yourself to this sinless man who died in your place. Thirdly, we should move to the Gospel of Matthew and notice another instance of the wrath of man preaching the Gospel and praising God. Matthew 27, verses 24 through 26. Still dealing with Pilate here, still dealing with him in front of the angry crowds, but Matthew gives us a sense of the guilt that Pilate felt over what he had done in handing Jesus over the crowds. But what we're going to find is that while Pilate felt guilty about what he had done, the angry crowds didn't feel that at all. Matthew 27, verses 24 through 26, when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. In other words, see to his crucifixion yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Another group of angry people, another set of angry words in verse 25, and yet another unwitting prophecy through which the Lord is praised. His blood be upon us and on our children. Now it's again clear that these people had no intention of saying that the way we would want to say it. They had no intention of Jesus' blood being upon them the way we sing. 
There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. We think of Jesus' blood being on us to cover our sins. They had no thought of that at all. Instead, what these people were actually saying was, we'll accept the guilt. Kill him. We'll take responsibility. Let his blood be on us. And not only on us, let it be on our children. If we're doing what's wrong, we'll take responsibility for it. It's a little bit startling, isn't it? No one but the most vindictive murderer walks into a courtroom and says something like that. I did it. The blood's on my hands. Go ahead and convict me. I take responsibility. That's not how they usually talk. Some killers confess remorsefully and regretfully. Most of them actually try through various means to get off the hook for what they did. But very few are so bold-faced as to stand in front of the judge and say, let his blood be upon me. I'll take responsibility. Come with what you got. I did it. But that's what they're saying. And so I say Matthew 27, 25 is jarring. But this jarring sentence is also a prophetic sentence, isn't it? Not least because the confession that these people made would be the exact same confession that they would have to make if they were going to come to Christ for salvation. The exact same confession that you and I must make. In other words, we have to confess it is our fault. It is our fault. Now, unlike these crowds, we do that penitentially penitently and not defiantly. And yet, the matter of our confession really is the same. It's my fault that he hung on that cross. I'm guilty. I accept the guilt. It was my sin that held him there. We have to be willing to admit that his blood really is on us, on our hands before His blood will do anything about cleansing our hearts and our rap sheets. We have to be willing to take the responsibility. Have you done that? I mean, it's one thing to say, oh, Jesus is wonderful, He died for us, but have you ever come to a place where you said, it's my fault? I'm the one who sinned. He didn't deserve to die, it was me. Have you ever done that? Have you ever admitted that the cross was, in part, your responsibility? Now, it's true he wouldn't have died without Pilate and without Caiaphas and without the angry mob that day demanding his blood. But he also wouldn't have died if it weren't for people like me and people like you who sinned against God and necessitate that he died. He didn't have to die if we didn't sin. So it is our fault. So though you and I weren't in the angry mob literally that day, in a sense, we were there. It was our sin It caused him to go to that death. And the first step in coming to Jesus is to be able to say what they said with a wholly different tone of voice, but to say what they said. His blood is on us and it's on our children. We're the sinners. We're the guilty ones. We take responsibility for it. But there's something else prophetic in what the crowd shouted that day, isn't there? Something far brighter and far better. That is... There was a sense in which Jesus' blood was going to be on some of these people and on some of their children. Not just in their guilt, but also in His forgiveness. This is the same city where in just a few weeks Peter would preach at Pentecost and thousands of people would come to Christ. And thousands more after that initial day. 
And it would appear that some of the same people who were in this angry mob this day were in the happy crowd that day when Peter preached because Jesus, Peter turned to them in Acts 2 and said, you crucified him. And of course he could say that to any crowd, but I think he meant it literally to the crowd that day in Jerusalem. You put him to death by the hands of ungodly men. So some of these same people who said his blood is is upon us and our children were probably there that day and believed at the preaching of Peter. And when they believed, his blood was upon them in a whole new way, in a far better way. And when you and I repent and believe, his blood is upon us in that very same way, isn't it? Not just on our hands in guilt, but covering our lives in forgiveness and in mercy. His blood be upon us and our children, the people shouted. And so it was in ways that they had not yet imagined. I just ask again, is it upon you? Is it upon you? It's a wonderful thing if it is. Finally, we should turn our attention to the crucifixion itself, this time from the book of Mark, chapter 15. Mark 15, 22 through 31. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. And that's the phrase. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Those words, of course, were said in a mocking, taunting, snide tone of voice. Those words were said out of the overflow of the wrath of man. And yet, once again, unbeknownst to the people who spoke them, they were sharing the gospel Perfectly. Mark 15.31 is exactly the gospel. If Jesus was going to save others, then of necessity he could not save himself. They didn't have it right in their hearts, but their lips had it exactly right. If Jesus was going to save others, he could not save himself. If there had been any other way, if the cup could have passed Jesus by as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, then surely the Father would have allowed it. But there was no other way for men to be saved. If Jesus was going to save others, he could not save himself. Man can't save himself, can he? There's no other way. You can add all of your do-betters and try-harders and works of penance and being a good person and all those things to your account. And you can't save yourself. It's not possible. The only person who ever lived on this earth who had the power to save himself from the wrath of God was Jesus. 
He's the only one who could, by his own volition and by his own merit, come away from the cross, come away from the punishment that was coming on him, and save himself. But if he had come down from the cross as the people asked him and challenged him to do in verse 30, if he had spared himself from that death, if he had chosen not to bear our sins in his body on the tree, if he had saved himself, then he would never have been able to save others. And so the crowds had it exactly right. If following the five-fold path of Buddhism could save anyone, if confessing that there's no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet could save anyone, if being a good Jew or a good Mormon or a good Jehovah's Witness could save anyone, if being a good American and helping old ladies and flying the flag and not killing anyone and paying your taxes and giving to the United Way and recycling all your pop cans, if that could save anyone, as many of our neighbors think, if attending church every Sunday and paying your tithes, and saying amen at the right places, and going through the water could save anyone, then Jesus would have come down from the cross, wouldn't he? It would have been so much easier. Surely, if any of those things would work, those things that so many people are relying upon, maybe some of us, if any of those things would have worked, surely he would have saved himself that day. But because he and he alone could save others, he could not save himself. It's a tremendous passage to sow to your unbelieving friends. It's the exclusivity of the gospel right here. He had to die. He had to die. There's no other way. And you can show them, look, the exclusivity of the gospel, the fact that there's no other way, has nothing to do with me being narrow-minded or Christians being prideful. That's not it at all. The exclusivity of the gospel flows out of the fact that if there was any other way, Jesus would have told us. If there was any other way, He would have come down from the cross. If there was any other way, He would have saved Himself. But He didn't, because there was no other way. He loved us and gave Himself up for us because He is the only one who can do that. So the exclusivity of the Gospel is all about honoring Jesus, who laid down His life, because there is no other way. He saved others and therefore he could not save himself. And Mark 15:31 not only teaches us about the exclusivity of the gospel, but about the beauty of the gospel as well. The loveliness of Jesus, the glory of the cross. What does it say about Jesus that he went through with it? What does it say about Jesus that in the face of all the taunts and all the challenges, he went through with it? What does it say about Jesus that he could have, he tells us, called ten legions of angels to rescue him, and he went through with it? What does it say about Jesus that he prayed, Father, if there's any other way, if you can let this cup pass from me, then let it pass from me, but not my will but yours be done. What does it say about Jesus that he did not come down from the cross, that he did not save himself? Well, among the many things it says is that he must really love Sinners. Here is love vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood that the Prince of Life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Would you have done that? For jokers like these people that were standing around him? Would you have done that for someone like yourself? No. Neither would I. Because we don't love like he loves. So the question again is, have you ever allowed that love to wash over you? Have you really entrusted yourself to this Jesus who, so that he might save others like you, could not, did not, 
would not, and was glad not to save himself? And if you have received that love, are you bathing in that ocean again this morning? That's been my great hope. To prepare you for the Lord's Supper, to preach the gospel to you, that you would stand at the trial of Jesus and that you would stand this morning beneath the cross of Jesus and hearing the words of all these angry men, that you would be moved to love the one about whom they unwittingly spoke so well. And that you would be moved wittingly to speak well of him too.